problems which someday uh, will come to, as, as most people, as a great shock. But to, to discover this, and of course, what generally they do is put it down when they hear, oh, no, what do you mean? I can tell good things anytime I see them. No. This is the, the problem, you see. It is difficult for people to tell what is good and what is bad when they do not have the frame around it. For example, if you were to find an old battered painting in the back alley someplace that has been discarded, it would be difficult for you to tell that it's a good painting if you saw the same painting hanging on the walls of the Museum of Modern Art, all cleaned up, well lit, with the proper lighting. You would know it's a good painting. There would be no doubt in your mind. And if you didn't like it, you'd know there was something about it you should like anyway. Uh, you might put it down, but you'd feel sneaky about it. And so these are all the little problems. When a man walks into a Broadway theater, any kind of a theater, really, but a Broadway theater in particular, he is walking into a whole tradition. He is walking into a building that, that has, has a long history behind it. Now, it might, it might come to pass that what he sees on the stage has no relationship with that history. Yet, he confuses the two. This is all part of, per, uh, of the problem of perception. On the other hand, it is all well known, and I'm certainly the first to admit to you, that radio is largely pop. But we know it's pap, you see. So then we have put around radio the aura of pap, that whenever we walk into uh, the, the, the radio loudspeaker, whenever we walk into the sound radius of a loudspeaker, we automatically assume we're listening to pap, unless, and this is the important unless, unless it happens to be a record being played by someone who is from another medium which we respect. And so, if you hear Bertrand Russell speaking, we respect his medium. He writes books. And then what he is saying is important because it's coming out of the loudspeaker. In spite of being on the radio, it is important because he's really representing another medium. And if we hear Olivier reading a poem badly, it doesn't matter. And by the way, he often does. I have heard some records he has made uh, <laughs> of poetry reading. I, I must go on. I'm, I'm the minority here, dissenter. He's a magnificent actor, but he often reads poetry very badly. Uh, if we hear Olivier doing it, we are automatically impressed because it is Olivier, and he's from another medium that we respect. I'm saying if it comes out of the radio. If you hear Charlie Brown reading poetry, just a name, but who happens to be far better at reading poetry than Olivier, we have a tendency to put it down because it is the radio, and we don't know the man. This is a fascinating little comment that was made to me about six or seven weeks ago by a reader uh, who was commenting on a, a bit that I did on television. And he said, you know, he says, I've been reading the TV critics, and he says, one of the critics made a big deal about Ernie Kovacs doing something on the television. And it was so, supposed to be such a great, wonderful, creative thing. And he said, you had done the same thing about six or seven weeks before. But nobody commented on it. He said the problem here was that it was old friendly Ernie that everybody knows. And so you could accept it from Ernie. In short, the frame was proper. We know that Ernie's a, a real man. We know that Ernie is funny. <laughs> and so what Ernie does is just one of our friends dropping in to do this funny thing. He says, however, you are unknown to the critics. And so what you do is suspect automatically. And that's a very interesting point. Now, now, this gets on to George Kaufman. Now, you want to hear about Kaufman? This is all part of the Kaufman story, so quit getting on the stick, you idiots. Listen to the preface, will you? 
Quit calling up. Tell him about Kaufman. No, I'm telling you about Kaufman. Now, listen, will you? Now, and, and the next one that calls, they, they stay listening, will you? Cut out the jazz. Quit calling. Now, Kaufman, now I want to tell you about Kaufman. I arrived in this town a complete, completely unidentifiable object. Most of us need identity, you see, to tell what's good or bad, especially if we're official people. The official people are very apologetic about letting other people and other mediums know that they think what they do is interesting. Well, I was here about two weeks. I was not more here, not more than that, really. It was, it was, it was astounding. Maybe three weeks. And I, I felt very depressed. I was in New York City, and New York City is a very closed city, uh, particularly in the field of theatrical entertainment, particular, and especially in the field of humor. If you're not doing it on the stage of the Blue Angel, you're not funny. That's all there is to it. <laughs> and, and you know, this is the way it works. If you're not doing it on an LP with a crowd of idiots cheering you, you're not funny. That's the end of it. They just say that. New York ha is the most is the most title conscious. It's the most, and I'm serious. It is the most promotion conscious, the most publicity conscious city that I have ever seen in the world. Believe me, uh, and I mean this. Uh, for example, in in New in in, in England, uh, a good radio performer automatically is considered real fodder for the films. Peter Sellers, by the way, is a is basically a radio performer. Are you aware of that? So is Terry Thomas. But these people went from the radio immediately into the films. It would never happen in New York, I can tell you that. But that's beside the point. I, I came on here, and I was working, and I was very lonely, and the people here at the station could not... They, they had no idea what I was doing. They looked at me blankly. No, this is true. Because most people are used to the same thing in radio. They, they entertain by interviewing somebody, which is fine, but this is, the, this is the extent of it. They'll interview somebody from another medium, or they entertain by by playing a record, or they will entertain by reading the news. And uh, incidentally, reading the news is considered entertainment in, enter er in many areas of radio and television. I have to tell you that. It's a sad fact. Uh, so this kind of entertainment was, was difficult. It was a new kind of thing. And, and, I, and the, the enter engineers were looking at me blankly because uh, it didn't fit into one of their categories, you see. Uh, the the program directors here were, were 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 confused, and it was just it was like it was like I was speaking Sanskrit in a world where people spoke uh, pidgin English. You know, we got not, we, nothing came across between any of us, and I would arrive a lonely figure here. Believe me, it was very interesting. Now that I look back, I've never talked about this on the air, have I? The early days here at OR, I would arrive a lonely figure here, and you see, this is what bothered me. I had come from an area where people did understand. I had been there long enough, and they had they listened carefully, you see. People in New York hardly ever do. Uh, they listened carefully. New York is a much faster area, and people have to understand something in 30 seconds, or whatever it is is nuts. They, it's no good. It's a nut. That's a nut there. He's still talking, and he's a nut. But why doesn't he play the record? And we live such fast lives in New York that everything... Do you know that what they tell you in program worlds here? I'll tell you something. To get a program like any program on the air in New York, whether it's radio or television, you have to be able to put it in such a form that the program director or the head of the production section of a, an agency can get the entire program in less than three minutes. I'm telling you a fact. 
you have to be able to put your show down in such a way that he can play a record, a, a transcription of what you're going to do, and hear it in three minutes. Other than that, he, uh, and get the whole thing. Other than that, uh, he's not interested. We do it here. It, it has to be all there in three minutes. So you can imagine what a, what a struggle I had. I mean, I, uh, it's not that my stuff is long. Not, th- not at all. But what it really is, is that it takes a great deal of listening to understand the, the whole aura, you see, the, the point that I'm making. It is, it is a sprawling thing, and I agree. I understand this. Well, anyway, through a series of odd little circumstances, I did get on the air here, and it was just on a Saturday afternoon. And so, I, all right, don't worry about it. She's keeping it, but it's all right. Don't worry. We're, we're right up there today. So... I arrived in New York, and I was very lonely, and I can't tell you how depressed I was. I was extremely depressed, because immediately after the after I would go off the air, hundreds of New Yorkers would call up. And New Yorkers, by the way, are among the most intolerant people I've ever encountered anywhere in the world. I hate to say this, but it's true. Uh, hundreds of New... Uh, don't, don't bother me. Hundreds of New Yorkers would call up, and they would be very indignant. What is this? What is this nutty stuff on the air here? What's all this going on here? What is this trivia stuff here? Why, what are you talking... Get it off. Get the record on. Get the record on. What are, give me the news. I want the news there. And, of course, this went on hour after hour. Well, uh, the people here stuck with it. And then, one day, I left the studio. And uh, this was only about three weeks after I had been here. I was depressed. I was earning uh, minus $2 a week. Uh, I, I mean, it was nothing. It was awful. And I came out of the studio, and there was a phone call for me. And, of course, all these irritated phone calls I had not been bothering with. The program department had been taking them and handling them as best they could. And I, I picked up the phone because the guy says, you better talk to this one. And I picked up the phone, and there was a voice on the other end. Sort of a kind of a nasal voice. He talked like this. In a sense, he kind of said, he says, hello. And I said, hello. He said, uh, you know, you're one of the funniest men I've ever heard in 35 years of show business. Don't go away. I said, who are you? Well, it doesn't really matter. He said, well, well <laughs> you know, 35 years in show business, who, who are you? You know? I said, well, my name is Kaufman, but I called up to talk about your program. And I want to meet you, and I want to talk to you about something. Well, to make a long story short, it was George Kaufman. And Kaufman was a man of, of unusual courage. He was also a man who had, as far as I know, and in my contacts with him, which were necessarily brief, were, uh, he had qualities which went beyond the problems that most of us are constantly running into, such things as, well, rank, such things as the little idiotic, trivial things like, well, this is uh, something that you don't do. You know, we, we're always are troubled with that. Well, uh, I was very depressed, and this was a tremendous uh, shot in the arm to me, and, and Kaufman said he'd been listening for the last two weeks. He almost caught the first show. And so... Uh, he says, come on over. Well, I visited him. I went to his apartment on Park Avenue, the one where he died in, the, the, the same apartment. It's up there on the east side, of course. And the, it's 1035, I think it was, around the 70s or 80s. 
And I got upstairs where he lived, and he lived in this apartment. And it was not sumptuous, nothing. It was a nice place, of course, but very, very small, very compact, very unpretentious. And he sat there, and I, I walked in, and uh, he greeted me at the doorway. Uh, I mean, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. He said, I'm sure pleased to meet you. He said, you know, I want to tell you something. He goes, come on in, come on in. And he was a very frail man. He was very frail, and at that point his hair was almost completely white. And he, he says, uh, would you like a drink? I said, yeah, yeah, fine. You know, I didn't know what to say. This is George Kaufman, say. And uh, I'm, the, I'm the bumpkin from the Middle West, and he, he poured me some scotch, and he sat there. He says, you know, he says, I, I won't tell you something about your work. And he talked about my work for about oh, an hour and a half. And he says, you know, what you're doing is a kind of theater. He says, it's a different kind of theater. And he says, I, I, I'm sure that nobody's going to know that. He says, and I think you better get in the real theater, the theater that everyone understands, because they'll understand it then. And he says, I want to work with you. And he wanted to collaborate. I'm just telling you the, the straight story. He wanted to work on a, on a piece that I had done on the air. He heard a piece, and he says, we ought to make a play out of that. Well, unfortunately, we, we had several meetings, and just at that point, he got into very bad health. He was, he was really badly off. And he would call me every couple of weeks and say, you know, his voice got weaker and weaker. He'd say, I wish we could work, but I can't. He said, but I'll get back. And I met him several times after that, but there's one thing you've got to remember. He was a listener. He really was one of us. And every, every night and every Saturday, he, he rarely went out. He would listen. And one time he called me over. He says, you know who just got into town? I said, who? He said, well, it's a funny thing. And he proceeded to tell me about uh, one of the Marx Brothers' wives. He said, you know, she arrived into town here last night, and she was a New Yorker. And the first thing she said is, is Shepard still on the air? And he says, she and I sat and we talked about things you'd done. And he says, you know, she wants to meet you. And so I went over there, and I, I shot the breeze with, Mrs., with one of the Marx Brothers' wives, and we talked for about three or four hours. We discussed FPA and all the great people who had worked here in New York in humor in days before. And, and the last time I saw Kaufman, uh, I, I remember Kaufman standing, and this was only about eight months ago. He, he was standing in the doorway, he says, you know... He said, I'm working on something. He says, when I finish it, you and I are going to work together again. He says, we're going to get working on this project. He's a wonderful man. And uh, I was very sad to find that he had died. When I picked up the Times and saw his picture, somehow something really important went. Not because of what his work was, because his work was good, but because of his attitude and his viewpoint. We'll be back in 15 minutes. Back once again to more of Gene Shepard. And don't worry, Ted, I'm, I'm uh, rationing it drop by drop because there's no question about it, but <laughs> the guy who works in any creative field, uh, even if it's remotely creative, every time he, every time he works, it's one little, n another drop of blood, and it never comes back again. You know? It's exhaustible. Not inexhaustible, but exhaustible. 
In fact, uh, one of the, well, the guy who talked about this at great length was F. Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald discussed the idea about uh, a person is a bank. He has a, uh, it's just like a bank or a container. And he says, once you have exhausted your whatever it is that makes you say whatever it is, makes you see whatever the world is about. He says, there's just nothing, nothing else. That's the end of it. So I, you know, I squeeze a little drop out here. <laughs> and at such rates, oh, oh my. You'd think that a guy would get a higher price for his blood. I'll tell you. Well, you know, speaking of blood, uh, it's very funny. Uh, before the news, we were uh, uh, briefly touching on on the business of doing a network show out of here uh, on the Mutual Network a long time ago. Well, it wasn't that long ago. It was 1955, something, 56, something like that. And I'd like to tell you a little story about that. Now, I know most of you are uh, are very unfamiliar with the way radio works. Uh, really, most people really have the vaguest idea of the way television and radio work. And I'll, I'd like to tell you briefly what a network is, if, if you don't know what a network actually is. You see, a network is not licensed by the Federal Communications Commission. In fact, this is one of the big arguments that is going on and has gone on for a long time in the FCC as to whether they should license a network. The reason the network is not licensed is because it actually does not have, it it does not transmit anything. A network does not put a signal into the air. In other words, they are not transmitting. What is licensed by the Federal Communications Commission is the transmitter. In other words, the right to operate a transmitter. Now, a transmitter is the device. If you if you ever drive out along the Jersey Turnpike and you can see all those towers standing up there to the right and to the left of the pike and you see that little building, that little low building, well, that's the transmitter house. And from that house is really from where the, the signal that you're listening to on your radio, this is where it really comes from. Now, I'm speaking of electrically. It comes from there. Now... Most of the radio stations that you hear have studios here in New York. For example, we're at 1440 Broadway. Our studios are all here. We are a New York radio station. But like most New York radio stations, and since New York is a very highly complex uh, geographical problem with buildings, one thing and another, the transmitters are located out of New York City, sometimes as many as 20 and 30 miles away. I've seen transmitters in some uh, situations, in some cities, The transmitter is 50 miles away from the studios. Well, our transmitter is in Carteret, New Jersey. Uh, Most of the New York transmitters are in New Jersey. WMGM, I know, is over there. RCA is over there. Uh, All the transmitters are are stuck over there in the Jersey flatlands. The reason for this is that it's very flat over there. There's There's an uncomplicated geographical problem there. And a big, solid antenna can be put up on that flatland that's relatively unobstructed. Now, that's the transmitter site. I call it that. Now, that actually is what is licensed. Now, when a radio station puts its programs on the air, it broadcasts from its own studios, generally. Uh, yeah, there's good ground conditions. You're right, Ed. The, the ground conditions over there are such that it's moist ground, and it gives us also a good electrical ground, which is very important, you see, because you hear our, our signal two ways. You hear it through the ground wave, you also hear it through the air wave. Now, we could get into the to the electrolytic uh, theories about that, but we will not. So, the ground conditions are the best in, that, in the area over there in the Jersey marshes. 
And so that's why the flatlands, really, and that's why the transmitters are over there. We don't want to go on and on with that. But this is what is licensed by the FCC, the ownership and the operating of a transmitter. Now, this is a public trust. In other words, it is, it, it, there is no charge for a license. Are you aware of that? The license is free. And uh, the only problem is, is that in any area, there are just so many frequencies available. Now, these are governed by the size of the area. They're governed by uh, all, all kinds of... It's very complex, and here's why it's complex. For example, we're very close to Philadelphia. We're only 60, 70 air miles from Philly. Now, Philadelphia has some powerful stations, too. So that affects the channels and the frequencies that are available here in New York, just as the, the situation in Philadelphia affects the situation in Wilmington, Delaware. The situation in Wilmington, Delaware, affects that in Baltimore. And it's very complex all over the... And, and here we are. We're a 50-kilowatt station at 710 on the dial. We could very well, at 9 o'clock at night, interfere with somebody in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, we could also interfere... Uh, for example, WGN in Chicago is at 720 on the dial, 10 kilocycles away. Uh, and yet... Uh, at night, our signals are heard well in Chicago, and theirs are heard well here. So we have to shield one another very carefully so that we don't interfere. We also, uh, WLW in Cincinnati, the station where I worked some time ago, is one of the most powerful stations in the country. They have a very complex antenna set up, and they broadcast really on a much broader base than we do because they're living in a low really, in a, in a sense, a low population density area. So they're concerned with a broader coverage. So WLW broadcasts all over the country. They broadcast to Kansas City in the south and everything. And they're on 700, only 10 kilocycles to our right. Uh, w, uh, WGN is to the left. And so we're bracketed. You have three very powerful 50-kilowatt stations, Chicago, New York, and Cincinnati, all within... Uh, an area of 20 kilocycles on the dial, and that's just 10 notches of separating them. Very, very uh, interesting problem. Now, they they uh, license the stations. Now, the network, what is a network? Well, I'll tell you what a network is. Uh, back in the 20s, uh, somebody decided, you know, uh, it might be interesting. He says, I don't own a radio station. Now, this is just a theoretical discussion. This is really roughly the way it happened. I don't own a radio station. Uh, other people do, and they have the licenses. Now, what would it be like if here in this hotel room I was to do a radio program, and I was to, instead of using uh, a transmitter, I was to hang a microphone down here and connect it into the telephone lines. And then I would send, over the telephone, I would send my program to a radio station, say, in uh, New York here, and then I would also send it to a radio station in Pittsburgh at the same time, on a telephone line. Well, uh, and, and, and I'll, I will go to those people, see, and I will say to them in New York and in, in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh, I will say to them, look, I have a radio program. Now, it costs you $10 to put on a radio program here, we'll say, for one hour. This is just very theoretical figures. Let's say it costs them $250, we'll say, because you need an orchestra. In those days, they used to believe that they had to have talent on radio. <laughs> You know, like funny people and people playing banjos and stuff. Today, now, they don't do any of that. They have a guy hollering and somebody somebody putting records on. That's that's all that radio is now. But in those days, you see, and this is why networks have collapsed. 
because radio no longer feels that it needs talent, unfortunately. All it needs is a few records and a guy to sell stuff. Well, in the day when they wanted talent, when they wanted radio programs, this is the way it worked. A man would walk into, let's say, the station in Pittsburgh, and he would say, I want you to listen to this program. And he would play a record for the program director and say, now, what do you think of that? He'd say, gee, that's wonderful. We can't put a program like that on. We don't have a band like that. We don't have a singer like that. I mean, you know, Pittsburgh, there's no singers like that around here. They're all going to New York. He says, that's the point. I'm in New York, and I have them there. Now, I, how would you like to have that show on every day from, say, from 10 o'clock in the morning to noon? And it'll come right out of New York. And it'll be live, alive. You know, they just... He says, fantastic. He says, all you have to do is to run your telephone line in here and plug it into your transmitter and you're in business. And not only that, we'll get the sponsor. Yeah, you don't even have to go out and sponsor. We'll go out and get the sponsor. Because we're in New York where all the ad agencies are. And the guy says, gee, that's wonderful. And he says, I'll tell you, it's going to... How much do you think this program would cost you if you put it on? He says, well, I don't know. Wow, that would cost at least $250 for the whole hour. you got four singers. you got a 75-piece band. I mean, you see, this was before the unions were really big. you, you got a tap dancer. That would cost me at least 250 bucks." He says, you will get it. Not only, not only will it not cost you anything, but we will pay you. He says, what? He says, yes, we will pay you. I'll tell you, how much... How much would it cost me to buy two hours of time on your station? I mean, how much would you get for two hours of time? The guy says, well, I get the GL. Let's see, I, I'll get uh, I'll get $150 for that. That's what it would cost you to sponsor that. And he says, well, uh, I'll tell you what we'll give you. We won't give you $175. But we'll give you two-thirds of that. But we will guarantee it for one year. One solid year we'll be on here. And he says, sold. I'll also have a great program, you see. Well, then he went to a guy in New York and did the same thing. Until finally, you see, he would have maybe 20 or 30 different people all carrying his network, his little telephone program, and he sold it to one sponsor. And the sponsor wanted to be heard in all those different cities, you see. And here he, he got the advantage of being right there where he could control the whole thing from one, from one room, and that was a network. That was what is known as the network. And to this day, it's exactly the same. So NBC, CBS, and all these different networks are all a series, really, a network of telephone lines. That's all they are. The studios that you see here at Rockefeller Center and so on are what replaced the hotel rooms. <laughs> They're just glorified hotel rooms. They don't, have, they don't have really a radio station. Now, what happened then later, of course was that many of the networks went out and bought their own radio stations. Well, the law says you can't have more than six radio stations, and they have to be widely separated geographically. And so the most that any network can own is six, no matter who they are. Well, the networks began to compete one with the other, and until finally it became such that the networks were much more important than the stations, as you probably know. Well, the reverse has happened today. Uh, since uh, the, the, the decline of talent in one thing and another in radio, and, in and it's happening in television, too, now, with the advent of the great film and tape programs, the, the radio stations locally began to put on their own programs. They found that people would listen anyway. If you just put on records and you got a local high school kid to holler about uh, the sponsors, and that's all they needed. And so they said, well, why do I need this band and all this jazz? I can go out here and I can sell my own 
my own sponsors, and that's what happened. And so the, the local stations became very important again. And today, the most important radio stations in every area are not the network stations, but they are the big local independent stations. Uh, WOR is one of them here in town. WNEW is another one. There are several big local independents here. And across the country, you will find this true. But that's what a network was. Well, uh, speaking of independence, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. We don't quite know what we're independent of. <laughs> but we like to feel that we are. And really, we are in, in, a, in a very definite sense. That we don't have to rely on the network's programming. We don't have to rely on the network. It got to the point, you know, where a network official, believe me, could call up a local radio station and, and literally dictate to him what his station was going to sound like from morning till night. Now, he had no, this is the problem, you see, he had no real responsibility, the network man, because he didn't have a license. Nobody was riding herd on him. No one could take his license away because he didn't have it. He just sat in that room and put out these things on the, on the wire. And, and so the decline of responsibility in radio set in at about the time the networks got big. When I say re responsibility, I'm talking about on a local level. And so the local guy would sit there, and all he had to do was to turn his transmitter on in the morning, and the programs would start to come in on the telephone line. And once in a while, he would cut in, maybe every, every four hours, and do a local newscast. That was about the extent of it. And all day long, and he was paid on a yearly basis by the network. Well, now, he really was an independent operator. He owned the station. He owned the, owned the license. But the programs came in on the telephone wire. So the question was, who really owned them? Well, of course, obviously, economically, it got to the point where stations forgot even how to sell. And they certainly forgot how to do radio programs. Uh, all they knew how to do in the end was to get sponsors, which, which really, in a sense, remains to this day. Most radio stations across the country, and by the way, WOR is a very refreshing difference, a uh, different type. Most radio stations across the country, you would be surprised, have what they call format radio. All they do is play records all day long. Uh, they get four or five disc jockeys, and all day long they play the same records, which is even more intriguing, and they, they play them at four or five hour intervals, each guy. They'll say, this is the Charlie Brown Show! And, he, and the Charlie Brown Show sounds exactly like the one that comes on at four when the guy comes on and says, this is the Howard Murphy Show! And it goes all day long, and it sounds exactly the same. Well, this is known as formula radio. And the formula, of course, is a substitute for ingenuity and quality and one thing or another. Speaking of formulas, we have with us today the, the paper book gallery. Are you interested in this discussion of networks? Most people don't, don't really know how it works. The television networks work exactly the same. The only difference being with the TV network, instead of using telephone lines, they use coaxial cables. Now, the coaxial cable is beginning to disappear, too, uh, since they have found ways to make film very cheaply. Uh, they've also found ways to make uh, tape very cheaply. Of course, this has all changed. So now you have what they call the independent packages. You know, it even got to the point where the guy that owned the network didn't even do the radio or television programs. You know that, don't you? That the ad agencies would bring in a program already put together, produced, packaged, and one thing and another. They would bring it to the guy who owned the hotel room, and they would put the program on in the hotel room. In short, the network operator got to the point where even he didn't do broadcasting. And so it, it got to be uh, a, a kind of thing where somebody way out in left field was doing the broadcasting, actually literally putting the shows together. 
the things that you were hearing. And the man who was actually responsible for broadcasting them to you had ver- had nothing to say. He could call up the network and say, I didn't like that program. And the network says, what do we do? We had nothing to do with it. That was a BBD&O package. You call a BBD&O and they say, what do you mean? That was a that was a Charlie Brown snuff package. Well, the snuff people brought that. And what are you talking Are you complaining about the sponsor? And then what are you going to do? Call up the snuff people? You see, it got, to, it got ridiculous. And <laughs> you couldn't get with anybody. And the snuff guy would finally say, what are you talking about? What, well, we don't care about you. We're only interested in selling snuff. What do you mean? You don't like it in Pittsburgh? Knock it off. We don't need you. We got Detroit. And so in the end, the guy, it, it got round and round. It's a very fascinating subject, the, the subject of radio and television. Uh, anyway, let's get on with the, with the thing. Now, networks work both the same in television and in radio. They're very exactly the same operation. The only difference, of course, being that one is visual, one is audible. Uh, have you noticed you hardly ever hear television programs? <laughs> they don't believe in sound. Uh, we have with us today, let's see, let's get some of the commercials here. We have the Pottery of All Nations. And uh, there's one aspect of the Pottery of All Nations setup that I haven't talked to you about really much. And that is that they are probably, and I, and I say this uh, very uh, with asterisks and little footnotes, they are probably one of the biggest distributors one of the biggest receptacles in this area of imported glassware, uh, particularly Swedish and Danish glassware, magnificent glassware. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the problems that I find when I go to the pottery of all nations is the problem of trying to stop yourself from buying too much. It's like going to a library. This is true. Uh, I went down to the, the pottery of all nations here, oh, it was about a month and a half ago, and they had a collection of beautiful Swedish glasses, little, round, beautifully designed Swedish glasses. And I saw these. They're little, little like, like old-fashioned glasses that can be used for almost anything, like tomato juice. And beautiful glasses at 12 cents each. Uh, this is really good stuff. Now, the kind of stuff that uptown you probably pay six times that price for. Well, I got in there, you know, and I don't need glasses. What is this? And, and I would like to say this. If you're looking for beautifully designed glassware, imported glassware, at, at prices that will absolutely astound you, I, I most heartily would recommend the Pottery of All Nations. Now, this is true in all of their shops. If you're in Jersey, there's a shop over there. If you're uh, in the Upper East Side, there's a shop there. The prices hold good for all of the shops, no matter what neighborhood. And this is really imported stuff. Everything is imported. Everything is imported in the pottery of all nations. That's why the name. They have pottery, they have glassware, they have sculpture, they have almost all of the imported type hardware that you can possibly imagine. It's beautiful. And, and, and they're, they're Danish flat stainless steelware, for example. It's just magnificent. But the thing that you should know about is the, is the price structure. I think you'll immediately find this out when you get there, that it's just astounding. And uh, there's this tremendous collection of almost anything that you want. Now, here's here's the story. The Pottery of All Nations is on Sheridan Square down here in the village. If you're coming into town, this is a really interesting place to visit if you're going to make the weekend village scene. And I can already feel the uh, stuff in the air because of the weather, you know. Uh, you Be sure to stop by the Pottery of All Nations because it's a genuine New York institution. It's the kind of thing you will not find in Trenton. You just can't. It's economically impossible for them to exist in Trenton or in in Camden or in Wilmington. So if you're coming into New York, this is a true New York phenomenon. 
the pottery of all nations. They're open until 10 o'clock Saturday night. And that also is true of all their stores. They're open every night till, till 10. But here in, in, uh, in the Sheridan Square area, you'll find them open until 10. And across cross town in the upper area, you'll find at 64th and Lexington, there is another pottery of all nations. And there's one on Route 4 in Paramus. Be sure to see their glassware. It's really worth a trip. And if you're looking for uh, gifts, boy, this is it, really. Uh, the pottery of all nations, no coffee in the summertime. The, the pot gets too hot. It gets everybody excited over there. All kinds of fights break out because the hot plate warms them up, you know. You know how pottery people are. They're very, very brittle. Uh, and, and uh, oh, yes, they are air conditioned. They squirt cold air on you once in a while, so it's okay, you know. This is the pottery of all nations. Now, directly across the street is the paper book gallery. Oh, by the way, if you're up in Nantucket, can anyone hear me up in Cape Cod? Hello! A new paper book gallery has opened in Nantucket. <laughs> yeah, and it's a genuine paper book gallery, too. Uh, a new one has opened in Nantucket. There's a new one in Wilmington. And they're all, all from the, the mind of the same guy. It was Marty Geisler, so that means that they're all they're all the same. They're all the same good taste, and they have all the same wonderful collection of paper books. Oh, one thing that Marty wanted to say, and I, I'm going to say it myself. I have a new LP record out, uh, and and he wanted me to point this out that he has a collection of the new LPs. Now, if you want to know what the LP is, this was recorded in. A, a show that I did down in Sheridan Square, number one Sheridan Square in the village over Christmas week. Uh, fist fights break out on the record. It was really recorded in performance. We recorded it over a series of five nights. And the people who were on the records, of course, they didn't know that we were recording. It was just done as a nightclub show. And I think you'll find the record very interesting. At least I hope you do. I'm very proud of the record. And uh, as I have pointed out from time to time, I feel that one of the new modes of literature these days is the LP, strangely enough. And if you are interested in one of these records, it's on the Electra label. The title is, Will Failure Spoil Gene Shepard? <laughs> Which is a moot point. And you will find this uh, now is on sale. Of course, it's on sale in all record shops. But Marty has a big collection of them in the paper book gallery. So if you're going down there, you will find them on sale down there now. As far as I know, he's the only one who really has ordered them in quantity. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the record company believes in secrecy. And they have brought my record out in, in the most stygian kind of secrecy that I could... I, I didn't even know it was out. As a matter of fact, I kept calling them and finally he goes, All right, if you want to know, it's out. Shut up. And that was the end of that. <laughs> Anyway, the, the title of the record, and you can, if you're, if you're, if you can't get into the paper book gallery, you can go into a record shop in your neighborhood and ask them for it. Tell them it's on the Electra label, and this is not Gene Shepard, the hillbilly singer. However, Marty Geisler, and it, if you can't get it, be sure to call the paper book gallery, and they'll hold one out for you. Uh, it's a very interesting record. Now, uh, oh, by the way, they're open until 2 o'clock this morning, the gallery. They're down on Sheridan Square. There's another gallery over on 6th Avenue at 8th Street. And uh, let's see, the other one is over on 3rd Street, back of the NYU campus. Now, some nice poor soul is going to call me up and say that there's, yes, tell Mr. Shepard that there's one over by the old Wanamaker building. Over. No, madam, we know about that. But that is not a retail outlet. 
uh, you know, it's just an official place. We're like a warehouse. You can go there if you want. But uh, that is not considered one of the paper book galleries by the people who run it. Now, let's see. Oh, you got a goodie in there? All right, come on. We could, don't give them a moment's rest. Pizza cushions. Lots of floors. Oh, what do you Two things done. But there's more, 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 more. There, slow down a minute. Take time out to light a Salem. Because with Salem, when you take a pop... It's springtime. It's worth living again. It's magic. Paper air softens every rich tasting color. Menthol fresh, rich tobacco taste. Modern filter too. Smoke refresh. Smoke Salem. I'm just kidding. Don't get mad, man. That's magic. I'm not against magic. In fact, probably if we had more of it, we'd be better off. Uh. Yeah, speaking of magic, uh, we better get on with the Ballantine Ale here. It's the only magic that I know that really does it. You lace into about three cans of Ballantine Ale, let me tell you, Dad. And uh, you've had magic. <laughs> you've also had a good ale. Uh, you know, it is true. Uh, one of my favorite combinations, oddly enough, there are some combinations in, in life that make it. And usually they're disparate. Uh, are you familiar with this combination? If you go to a Chinese restaurant, I'd like to suggest something for you. Uh, when you order, uh, when you order, you know, when the dessert comes, I'd like to give you a little suggestion. It's just a little suggestion. I'm, I'm a nut on cooking. I enjoy it immensely. And I would like to give you a suggestion, something you can do if you go to a Chinese restaurant. And you've had your meal, you know, and they've given you the little bowl extra that stands off to the side of rice. Well, save some of the rice. Save about half of the rice. You see, you eat the rice with the, whatever it is you have. And then when the, the, tell a guy, now I want the rice. Don't, don't take the rice away. You know, when he's clearing up the table. And then when he says, uh, dessert, please, you want dessert? You say, well, yes, uh, what do you have? He say, we have almond cookie, almond cookie. We have Chinese fortune cookie. We have ice cream. We have ice cream, uh, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. You say, bring me vanilla, vanilla ice cream, please. Vanilla ice cream. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll, oh, vanilla ice cream. Thank you, sir. Well, then he goes away, see, and he comes back and he brings you the vanilla ice cream. Now, you got the vanilla ice cream, see, and you got the rice. Take the rice, particularly if it's hot. Try to keep it warm if you can, you know, get warm rice. And take about two full tablespoons of rice and dump it over the vanilla ice cream while it's hot. It melts down into it, and it is fantastic. Really, it's the wonderful combination of the blandness of the rice, the warmth of the rice, with the cold of the ice cream, and the sweetness of the ice cream makes a beautiful dessert. Just try it. Just thought you ought to know. There's a lot of things. Now, now do you want me to tell you how to fix chicken bouillon? Do you know that I used to do a cooking show? Oh, I should tell you about that. No, seriously, I did a one-half-hour cooking show... Uh, every day in a Midwestern radio station that was one of the most popular shows that the station had on. I loved it. 
I used to, now, this was all my own stuff, you see. Now, I can tell you how to make chicken bouillon. You want to you know? Here's an interesting thing. Go, go, to, go to any store and buy yourself a can of, of uh, chicken consomme. You interested in chicken consomme? You, you want to know about how to make chicken consomme, huh? You want to know about it? All right, take chicken consomme and, and heat it. Get it very hot. Now, there are two or three ways to do this. Get it very hot. And then, as, as it gets hot, crush in another dish... Just crush it. Take, take it. Crush a, a sprig of mint. Uh, mint as an herb. Crush it, to say. And then take some of the hot consomme and pour it into the dish. Slosh it around so that you get the elixir of mint. Pour it back into the consomme and drop the sprig of mint that has been crushed on the top of the consomme and serve it immediately. Oh, fantastic. Oh, Dad. And then I'll tell you another way to do it. Take chicken consomme. This is another way to do chicken consomme. It's, it's magnificent. Take this chicken consomme. You can even use chicken bouillon. Why am I doing this? It's insane. Take chicken bouillon. Hot, of course. It must be absolutely hot. Take a slice of lemon. Squeeze the lemon slice gently. Just not too much. Just gently. One, a, a whole half slice of lemon. Squeeze it gently into... Just maybe four or five drops, maybe six drops, into the consomme, and then take a long slice off the skin of the lemon, like you're making a martini, just a long, thin slice, twist it, and drop it into that, that, that light yellow chicken consomme and serve. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and someday ask me about mushrooms. We'll talk about that. Enough of this talk. Uh, what I was going to tell you, you know, it's funny. I, I'm afraid that I did deviate here from... And what I was doing, I was going to tell you about a network thing. Well, uh, when I when I first started to do this thing here on WOR, they were feeding it to the mutual network. Well, it was crazy. Uh, most network now is unfortunately Phil. I mean, they, they radio stations all over the country just will carry certain things just for a while while they disc jockey is out having lunch, you know, <laughs> and they'll put the network show on. Or they'll tape it and they'll put it on later so that the disc jockey can be off for two hours at night. And, uh, you know, so on. So I was on here doing a network show, and, and the network show came on at, at five minutes past 12. On the network, it went out. went out all over the country, you see. That was ostensibly. It went. It did. It was fed into the phone lines all over the country. Well, you know, here it was. It was being fed from coast to coast, Canada, China, every place, you know, coast to coast. And I would do it out of the studio here. And I'd get on the air. And, of course, it never was carried in New York, so you didn't hear it. Seriously, you did not hear the program. I know it. It was carried all over everywhere but New York. Well, actually not. Here's what happened. Uh, I would do a show, you see, and I did... Because I knew it was like talking to yourself. I did outrageous... I mean, just absolutely... <laughs> I was wild. So I did this network show, and I would do it, let's say, on Monday. Wednesday, the mail would come in, and where would it be from? Little Bighorn, Cheyenne, Wyoming. I would get I would get 65 letters from Wyoming. I would get 42 letters from a tiny itsy bitsy town in Mississippi. All of them demanding that I be tarred and feathered. 